Welcome to Native Currents, a critical look at what's going down in Indian country. I'm Glenn Wheeler. And I'm Stephen Van Lovell. And we're broadcasting from the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the New Credit. Nice to have you with us again for another issue of Native Currents. And today we're very pleased to have a special guest, Julie Bull. Julie is a woman of many talents. Uh, her expertise is in the area of research, ethics, and governance. And though that sounds like a very academic sounding thing, it's actually very vital to indigenous peoples and uh, has a lot of impact in a, in a daily, uh, on a daily basis. And we want to speak to Julie about that. But we want to speak first about Julie's territory, where she came from and where she often goes back, which is Labrador. Julie, um, I think Canadians know vaguely where Labrador is. Do they? Some do. Some uh, do. A, a very high amount don't, which is a little scary and shocking. Yes. Of course, Labrador is uh, part of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, but of course, uh, that that's a, a new a new way, a new name for the province after uh, about 10 years. Um Labrador is uh, is the, uh, the the in many ways the poor cousin of of Newfoundland because uh, you guys have the resources Newfoundland gets the royalties. Yes, absolutely. These days, of course, the the big story in Labrador is Muskrat Falls, the big hydroelectric uh, development going on up there. Um, many issues related to Muskrat Falls. Uh, People who follow the news know that uh, a couple of weeks ago a dam collapsed, and uh, and it's it's a good thing no one was uh, no one was hurt, and perhaps this is a good symbol of uh, how Muskrat Falls is turning out. Yeah, I think a lot of local people in Labrador would certainly agree with you on that. Grossly uh, out of budget, behind schedule, and uh, this uh, what was promised uh, by former Premier Danny Williams as this big green power development is uh, poisoning the waters of uh, of that territory and and your your people uh the southern inuit of labrador um they feel it's they who will who will feel the impact of uh of this uh, the fallout absolutely fallout. yeah and uh, among many other folks in labrador the inu also share a lot of that same land and then folks further north in the nazi of what they People are nomadic still in Labrador. Yes, you go where the caribou is, you go where the, the things are. And so people share that land. And already we're seeing the implications that this hydroelectric uh, development is having on the environment and the people who live in that environment. Well, tell us a bit about that, Julie. I mean, um, I understand that one of the, uh, the the main developer, Nelcor, released their own study, which uh, refutes another study that uh, that was done by the peoples out there. I mean, what do you know about that? And what can you tell us about the, the impacts and, and, and the differences between these two studies? Well, I mean, what's challenging, right, is when you have um, people who are everybody has vested interest in what they're doing, right? So when a, a research project is commissioned by a developer who is going to do that work, their feasibility study that they did at the beginning, of course, is hypothetical. So they don't know yet. Even if they did, could, if they could foresee what was going to happen, they will, of course, only say the things that will make them look good in a certain light. So despite the fact that since then, 
there's been a collaboration between the Memorial University of Newfoundland and Harvard University with very well-known and well-respected scientists who have been studying things like the, the levels of methylmercury in the water there. Already, we're seeing that those levels are too high, and we people in Labrador rely on the berries and the fish and the animals and the plants and the medicines. And so all of those things are being contaminated by the work that's being done there. And so it's hard when you see, I mean, the, the problem with research, right, is that you can always find a project to support whatever your theory is. And so this is one of those examples where depending on where you're looking, you're going to find different, different answers. And so, but what, for me, what's important is how that actually uh, applies to people who live there. And so Regardless of what studies may say, people who live there know. They know that they're catching fish that are making them ill already. And so if that's already happening, the project's not even finished yet. As Glenn said, we're already a couple years behind schedule and however many millions or billions of dollars over budget, they're not even done yet. And already we're seeing the implications. So if that's already happening over time, it will just increase, right? I mean, the more uh, the animals and the plants and the fish and everybody, everything is being affected, the environment obviously uh, has implications for individuals with their health, with their way we, we interact in the environment. Indigenous people uh, in most parts of Canada and around the world are very connected to the land. That's a part of who we are as Indigenous people. So when people like Nalcor or others are coming in and they don't see the, the impact that that kind of work has because they see uh, what the benefits may be to other folks elsewhere who will then be able to get better access to hydroelectric. Shareholders. Shareholders, <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. The uh, you mentioned uh, this uh, the research carried out by Harvard and the uh, and Nelcor says Harvard what's that uh, as if to say uh, you know the the research is not credible somehow uh, because they they didn't commission it themselves uh, but I guess this gets into the the area of research and who research benefits does not benefit and particularly the history of indigenous people in academic research. Often research is uh, is something done to us uh, without uh, benefit to us as Indigenous peoples. And um, can you tell our listeners about this this area of research ethics and governance? It sounds um, you know very ivory tower and perhaps something that doesn't impact uh, ordinary people if they're not uh, in the academy. Uh, but tell us about what that what that is generally and how it uh, manifests itself in uh, in ordinary ways. Right. So when it comes, to, you're absolutely right that most people when I when they ask what I do and I talk about research ethics and governance, the face glazes over and they really couldn't care less. But then when I say how it actually is applicable to them, the governance piece is the biggest bit. So for most indigenous people, governance more generally is on our agendas. We're trying to figure how do we govern our lands, our people, our resources. How do we have our govern our own healthcare, education, all those pieces. So the governance of research is just an extension of that. The, the right that Indigenous people have to self-governance also extends to research. So why should we, as Indigenous people, be allowing folks at the University of Toronto or other Southern universities making decisions about what research should be done in our communities? Then the ethics piece talks about, you know, just the general how we relate to each other. So everybody, when you start talking about the actual practical human implications of it start to realize, oh, there is benefit. So like, for example, in Inuktitut, there are no words for ethics, governance, research, all these are words, right, that we have in English, but they don't have words for that. So uh, the best thing an elder said to me once, we will say things like, be true to yourself and to do the right thing. That's kind of what ethics means. And so doing that, not just in like your day-to-day life and your personal relationships, but how that also works in the work that you do. So this intersection that I work out of kind of research policy and communities, how do we have all those people 
working together in, a, in an ethical way. Now, I know Canada and I guess other jurisdictions, but primarily Canada in, in its relations with um, research with Indigenous peoples has come a long way. I mean, there was a time when researchers would, would go out and they do research, again, on Indigenous peoples and then parachute back out to wherever they came from. In the community, there would be no real benefits to them. Tell us a bit about like some of those key uh, milestones that have been met and still what you see, I guess, is some of the challenges in, in, in your work. So it's interesting because I think a lot of people think that regulation of research has been around for a long time, but it actually wasn't until 1998 that Canada had its first national policy uh, for research ethics. And in that chapter, in that policy, there was like a half a paragraph that said, we we think there might be some extra considerations for working with Indigenous people. We don't know what they are, and we haven't actually talked to Indigenous people, so we can't create policy yet. But just be aware that maybe there's something different. And so then that was in 1998. And then for the next decade or so, we saw mobilization within Indigenous communities themselves. So, you know, the the government and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and all these other big uh, funding bodies were creating their own bits in a very slow way. But Indigenous people in communities like in Ganawagi in Quebec, for example, Manitoulin Islands here in Ontario, uh, and then the work that I do in Labrador, we've been doing this between 10 and 15 years now of creating our own uh, community-based research governance structures. And so then in 2000. 10 is when the the national policy was revised and a second edition came out and in that now there is a full section chapter 9 is all about research involving uh, First Nations Inuit and Métis and of course what's interesting though is that the policy kind of tells you what you have to do but nowhere does it tell you how to do it so what we've been trying to do now we I mean me and a bunch of a lot of other indigenous scholars and community members who are trying to figure out how we actually do that so for example the biggest thing that they talk about in this policy is to have partnerships, to build relationships. Great. We know this. In communities, we know that the number one thing you do when working with a researcher is to build those relationships. But when they get research funding from some of these major uh, national funders, there is no money built into those grants to do that work. So if you're based in Toronto, for example, and are doing work in Nunavut, well, it costs money to go there, yeah, to go to have a face-to-face meeting, to collaborate with people in the community, but yet the funders are not yet catching up to what the policy says. So even though they've created the policy and says this is what you have to do, no one yet is putting the money there for people to actually be able to do it. So that is for sure one of the biggest challenges. Another huge challenge when it comes to funding and the way research is governed is that anything that's funded through these national agencies had to be funneled through university institutions. So even if you have, so for example, I recently was working with some folks at the National Association of Friendship Centers, and in this department, they had several folks who had PhDs and master's degrees and postgraduate, all very capable researchers to do this work, but they can't actually hold the research funding. So they will always have to then find a university. And then of course, as we know, the university gets the money, they get the admin fee, they get all that stuff from the top, and then you're still expecting people in communities to kind of volunteer all of that time and so you know some of the funding challenges as often is the case is one of the huge ones so how does it work uh, even a master student at a university if they're doing work that involves or is about indigenous people will have to go through this um, for the through these research protocols they will have to be approved by some committee of the university so how do those uh, how do those work it sounds like you the MA student will be submitting a proposal to a committee of the university, which might not include uh, any indigenous people. They are a nameless committee who will approve or not approve. So it might be that we have some of the 
the building blocks in place, but uh, some construction is yet to occur. Absolutely. Uh, I think so. What happens is every university or hospital uh, or other institutions will have institutional research ethics boards. So any research involving humans or animals, but that's not my area, um, will have to go through this ethics process. But what's different is that the, what they're looking for is about individual protections in research. And what people in Indigenous communities are looking for is about protections of communities in research. So it's not just about how you as an individual person uh, may be implicated in a project, but how then politically, socially, culturally will this community be impacted? And are there benefits or risks to collectives? So when we review stuff in a community way, of course, it's still important about the individuals, right? We still need to have an individual consent and people need to be to feel protected in the research. But it's beyond just individuals and it's about the, the collectivity and the, the community as a whole and how that fits. So those are two different structures that happen. So for an MA student who wants to do work in an Indigenous community, they will have to be like all their peers and go through the research ethics board at, a, at the university. Then they will have a second step as well in getting community-based approval. And increasingly across the country, we're seeing lots of um, indigenous communities that have that. They have full structures in place that have applications. They have the whole bit that people need to go through to get the same kind of approval. And of course, these days with uh, the the word of the day is reconciliation. And of course, with reconciliation goes research. We know that there are many uh, academics um, for very good and there much of the research is very useful and very important. So it's a it's a it's a big deal these days because of the moment that we're in. Um, I would expect that probably research of this sort that require that uh, that re- that these ethics and governance considerations are applicable to. It's a it's a exploding field. I would think because of the uh, of the reconciliation um, moment that we're in. Absolutely. In fact, just last week I was at a national conference in Regina that was called that very thing: reconciliation through research. So the entire three days was about. Uh, bringing together Indigenous and non-Indigenous students, scholars, academics, community folks, and talking about how does this actually work? How can we, because people are recognizing the value. Like, that's the thing, too. Not everybody understands the value of research, but a lot of people do, and they realize that if we want to be able to access program dollars and these sorts of things, we need to have evidence to support why we should get that kind of funding. And so the research then feeds directly into health services and education and all these justice and all the other pieces. And so... It's a very important and growing field. Definitely is exploited. When I first started doing this work uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I was like one of maybe five people that were doing it. And now certainly it's definitely increased in popularity. Well, were you five when you started research? I was, I was, yeah, <laughs> I was. My mom tells me that. <laughs> As Glenn mentioned, reconciliation being the flavor of the day, you were just at the conference on reconciliation through through research. But, you know, we, we've seen an explosion of companies, government, agencies, people, wanting to engage in a process of reconciliation, but they want it to be quick. And we know that research with indigenous communities takes time. I mean, you know, there's naturally been a mistrust of these researchers that have uh, flown in, flown out, taken taken the information, you know, gone on and made fabulous careers with no real benefits to, to the communities. So, I mean, are you seeing a change? Are you seeing people still wanting to rush, even though, you know, all these... Um, you know, the, these great advances in terms of, you know, community-based research and, and, and ethics board of the community as well as the, as the, the, the national level. But are people still wanting to, to rush it? Because I know, you know, if you're doing a master's, let's say it's two years. If you're doing a PhD, you know, it's four years. But I mean, really, the research is what, two to three years? Um, 
and the relationship takes time. So, I mean, are people still, like, are you still seeing that or? I think it still happens more than people want it to, right? We always assume that when we create a policy or we make something new, we think that magically then that changes everything, right? So when you talk about reconciliation, it's a perfect example because everybody is saying that now, but everybody wants that quick fix. They feel like, oh yeah, well, I mean, I did some like a half an hour online tutorial about indigenous people. So I'm culturally aware now. And I mean, like, that's not, it doesn't work that way. It took us a long time in Canada to get to this place that we're at. So we can't expect to unlearn and relearn all of the pieces that we've kind of messed up to this point. And so, I mean, there's a lot, I think, left to do for us in that respect. Anyone uh, who's on Twitter knows, uh, may know that Julie is a prolific uh, person on Twitter. Uh, Tell our listeners, uh, Julie, how they can uh, learn more about you, your work, and what you're thinking about. Sure. So on Twitter, you can find me at Julie R. Bull, Julia Bull, as someone mentioned to me one time, which is now why I've chosen the Juliest one as my Instagram. I figured if I'm Julia, I might as well be the Juliest one as well. And then I also have a website, uh, juliebull.net, where you can keep up to date on uh, publications, upcoming events, and such things like that. Thanks for being on Native Currents, uh, Julie. Pleasure to have you here. Uh, and thank you. Uh, you listeners for tuning in again to Native Currents. Follow us on Twitter at Native Currents, nativecurrents.blogspot.ca, and subscribe on iTunes. A big thanks to Allison Baker, our technical assistant, and see you next time. See you later, Steve. See you next time, Glenn. Bye, everyone. <laughs>